This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view, so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring more useful and usable application. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Context. It's everywhere. No, really, you can't move without bumping into the stuff. But it used to be that we at least had a grasp of what context we were in at any given time. We were either here or there. But technology has radically changed what it means to be here or there, and has brought about some challenging design problems along with it. Lead information architect at Vanguard, Andrew Hinton, discusses what does architecture even mean when the walls are made of vapor? How do we map places that don't behave like places anymore? And if you don't know whether you're here or there, then how do you know which version of yourself to be? I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. The title is You Are Here, You Are Mostly Here, Digital Space and the Context Problem. Um, this is going to touch on a lot of things that other people have talked about here and there through the conference, only with much less coherence. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully, though, with uh, some value. Um, mainly what this is is uh, some, some spin-off ideas from other work that I've done that some of you may have seen at this point, I don't know. Um, and uh, I'm trying to drill into this whole context issue. So uh, without uh, belaboring the point any further, here we go. Um, so this is Vegas. Um, thanks, good water. All right. Um, so let's say you're in Vegas. Can you, everybody can hear me, right? We're good? Should I get closer to this? Or, or okay. All right. Um, so let's say you're in Vegas and you go to Vegas to do stuff. Uh, you do the sort of stuff that a slogan like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas would indicate as appropriate for the doing of in Vegas. And let's say that Vegas, without telling you, has decided to add, do a value add to its service model. Let's say that uh, they decided to surprise you and all their visitors with a new service. And this new service is basically that people will watch uh, everything that you spend money on in Vegas, right? So what they're going to do is uh, the, the security cameras that are already there, they're going to hire people to keep an eye on everything that you do in Vegas. Every time you spend a dollar on something in Vegas, uh, there's going to be somebody seeing it. But that's not it. That's not it. They're also going to transcribe everything that you spend money on. Uh, they're going to keep uh, on, on, on a typewriter, actually, which is cool. Uh, they're uh, they're going to keep a record of every single thing that you spend money on in, in, in Vegas. And uh, uh, products that you buy, shows you see, services that, you know, you acquire. Oh, but it gets better. I mean, this service, this service is awesome. So uh, you're really going to love it. it then they, what they do is they go into your hotel room and they get to your address book, which is obviously going to be on a Rolodex. Um, and they're going to get into your address book, and they're going to pull out all the people you know, because why would they bother you asking about it? I mean, that's, that's just a, this is much more convenient. 
Uh, so they're going to go in there, they're going to get all the contacts out, and then they're going to send a notice. Every time you spend a dollar on something, they're going to send a notice to everybody you know uh, that you bought such and such in Vegas. That's awesome, right? I mean, who, who wouldn't want that? No, of course, I mean, completely sarcastic. Uh, of course, you would not want this. In fact, if they did this, there, there would be lawsuits, there would be legal issues, um, uh, it, it would be insane. But that's what Facebook did with Beacon. Who's heard of Beacon? Okay, so I'm not the, uh, okay. So basically, Beacon was a service that Facebook launched with very little warning. Uh, essentially, if you were logged into Facebook, it would track your activities at certain partner sites and announce them to your friends list via their news feeds. So if you were at Amazon and bought a book or some music, um, your friends list would know all about it. Now, Facebook just assumed, that's a good place for that, uh, Facebook just assumed that it was something that people would love. Uh, and I say Facebook collectively like, you know, but there are several people making these decisions. Um, essentially, a, uh, a recommendation engine that gave you an idea of what your friends were buying as a way of knowing what you might be interested in buying too. It was awfully convenient for them to assume this because it was great for their business model, right? Uh, because this meant that they would get clicks into stores where people might buy stuff, etc. But unlike Vegas, where it would have taken a major expense and work to create the infrastructure, not to mention a radical overhaul of Nevada privacy laws, there was rel relatively little inertia in the way for Facebook to have to worry about that, uh, to do this so-called feature. So what was the outcome? Well, the outcome was mass revolt. Uh, people hated it. It caused a huge revolt, a lot of controversy. It, it hurt Facebook's brand. Um, now, of course, they've got sort of a monopoly of sorts over, over, over their networks, so it, it didn't hurt them as much as maybe it would have some other place. Um, but it still wasn't so great for their, their brand, and, and it, was yet an, it was yet another stumble and a lot of like sort of PR fiascos like this for Facebook. Um, why? Why did this happen? Well, because Facebook didn't take the time to really understand their users, and they were really designing just for themselves. They created a service that they thought was well-meaning and good, but it was ultimately just sort of a selfish act, and, and it per was perceived as this monster that misunderstood how people thought of their network of friends. It was this thing that just was saying, you know, friend, bam, you know, and, and doing these awful things. And if you've seen this movie, you, you know, the scene does not end well. So, uh, so that brings us to urinals. Has anybody seen this before? Okay, so uh, this, is, this is a urinal. And uh, it's probably the most influential work of art of the 20th century. Um, to be exact, it's a, and, and, I don't, and I would say that flippantly, um, to be exact, it's a urinal that Marcel Duchamp submitted to an art show in 1917, but he didn't just submit it. He scrawled R. Mutt on the side, 1917 on the side, like an artist's signature. He called it Fountain, he put it on a pedestal, and then he submitted it. By, and, and it was a splendid act of Dada. It, it was the, sort of the beginnings of the Dada movement. And uh, it ended up, ended up being more than merely sort of a practical joke. He was making a point by labeling it. Okay, respond to me. Why are we not responding? There we go. By labeling it and putting it in a different context, Duchamp changed the frame of reference for the object. 
It was a challenge against everything that had come before, every cultural assumption or taboo. It was taking literally high culture and the lowest of culture and cramming them together. Uh, it wasn't taken very well, <laughs> but it was incredibly influential. Uh, it, this photograph was taken by Stieglitz, in fact. And then this thing was actually lost. Uh, and, uh, and then in the 60s, he commissioned um, a series of replicas, which is a whole other issue. So uh, that's, that's the fountain. So labeling. Labeling and context. Interesting. Um, here is a picture that was on boingboing.net not long ago. Um, a graphic that was, uh, it's, it's noticed it's this sort of grainy satellite photo. The labels say that there's a decontamination vehicle, a security post, and a large chemical munitions bunker. People make important decisions based on stuff like this. Now, this one's kind of made up, but still. People make really important decisions based on the way things like this are labeled. But right next to it, um, they had this, which showed a delivery service truck, an SUV, and an international house of pancakes. Now, uh, you know, you may think eating at IHOP is not that different from chemical munitions, but, but that's not the point. The point is nobody's going to, you know, launch ICBMs at, uh, at IHOP, hopefully, even though it's international. Um, so another, another little interesting uh, object lesson. Uh, this is the trolley conundrum. Uh, imagine there's a trolley that's going really fast, or, you know, fast enough. And this brakes are out. Oh, no. Um, it's racing down the tracks. And this track has a fork in it. And on one side of the fork, oh, well, hang on. You're standing by the track. And you happen to see that this is going on, right? You're, oh, no, I can see this is going on. And uh, on one side of the fork, there's someone lying on the track. They're unconscious. Uh, on the other side of the fork, there are five people lying on the track unconscious. Now, why they're all unconscious, I don't know. Uh, maybe there was a rave last night in the train yard. Not a smart place to have a rave, but when was there ever a smart place to have a rave? Um, regardless, not only are you witness to this impending catastrophe, you also happen to be the only person within the reach of a lever that happens to control which way the trolley will go in the fork. And you know that it is right now set to go down the side that's going to kill five adorable unconscious ravers with their little suckers in their mouth and everything. And, uh, uh, and that's terrible. And you know that if you pull the lever, it will go down the other fork and only kill one of them, but it will save those other five. Now, so tell me, uh, who would pull the lever? Raise your hand. Who would pull the lever? All right. I'm not doing an official count, but uh, th th this problem has been around for a long time. Uh, and and in, apparently, no matter what culture, what gender, what demographic or whatever, when they, when they put this problem in front of people, nine out of ten people say, yeah, I mean, you know, not lightly, but yeah, I, I guess I would pull the lever. All right, but that's not all. If they ask a bunch of other people a, a, a slightly different version of this question, who haven't heard the first version yet, imagine there's a trolley and it's, um, oh, you already said that. Okay, 90%. Okay, move on. Only this time there is no fork in the track and the five unconscious people are lying on it. And this time you're not on the side with a lever, you're standing on an overpass above the track. And a huge, like, Andre the Giant guy is leaning precariously over the edge of the overpass, uh, watching the trolley with delight or something. And um, you know that the trolley is going to kill five people, but you also know you're not big enough. If you jumped in front of the trolley, you, you wouldn't stop it, but this guy's big enough. And if you just, if you just <laughs> gave him a little, little nudge, you know he would just, bam, he would just go right down. It would stop the trolley and save five people. Would you do it? 
Okay, it's about the right, it's about the right, uh, uh, yeah, uh, nine out of ten people say, no, hell no, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't push that person. Now, um, that's interesting, you know, because the math is the same. What changed? Well, the problem's been around at least 40 years, and they've been using this to illustrate for a long time, but only recently have people been trying to figure it out with this wonderful fMRI stuff, which is just so much fun, and it's causing all kinds of uh, fun things to be learned. Um, turns out it has to do with brains. And scientists have been working on this. They've been scanning people. They've been sticking people in an fMRI machine and asking them this question and scanning their brain while their brains are kind of going, huh, what would I do? And turns out it has a lot to do with the parts of the brain that are involved in figuring out uh, how, ethics and whatnot. Um, so our frontal lobes are more recently evolved and house our more rational, logical processes. This is all leading somewhere, by the way. Um, this, so this part tends to engage the version involving the lever because it's sort of a cost-benefit analysis. We're more physically removed from the results of our action. Pulling a lever isn't as visceral or intimate an act as pushing a human being. So let's say this is sort of the Spock side, okay? Then there is the limbic system, which is quite ancient. It's very deep in the brain. It handles a lot of stuff like breathing and bodily functions. It also handles instinctive things like fear, revulsion, and pleasure. An awful lot of our behavior really comes from here, and our frontal lobe tries to sort of make sense of it often after the fact. In fact, most of what you do, believe it or not, comes from here, and you rationalize it within a millisecond. Um, but, but that doesn't mean you can go out and do stupid stuff, um, or that you're allowed. At least that's what I would tell my kid, you know, if I was telling her this. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, this part is, has all kinds of things about self-preservation, preservation of the species, all kinds of like evolutionary crud is in there. Uh, and it makes it very, it, it makes that intimate thing really hard to do. So uh, just to stick with our metaphor, we'll say this is more like Kirk. So what these scientists contend is that when we encounter a problem like this, we'd like to think that we're very rational. But in fact, both of these parts of the brain are engaged. But they fight it out to see which side wins, as illustrated here. You know this. You know the scene, right? Who knows? Who knows? Who's seen this? Oh yeah. Dun dun Okay, yeah. It's awesome. Uh, that's the Star Trek fight music. It, it's it's. You, you should know that. Uh, okay, so the, their point that they're getting at is, hey, what we think of as morality, we'd like to think it all comes from Plato and all that stuff. But honestly, it's it's here. It's these things are fighting it out, and depending on little bitty changes in context, we, we could be coming off, uh, coming up with completely different reactions. All right. So, what does this tell us? It tells us interesting things about the power of context and language. The fact that context is to some degree biological. Our brains respond very differently to just a few changes in context. And then there's the fact that these trolley stories are not actual physical situations. They're not putting somebody on a trolley track and then sticking the fMRI thing around their head. I mean, they're just telling them a story with words, and they're still getting these reactions. Um, so language is incredible, incredibly powerful, and context and language are symbiotic. They influence each other so deeply that there's really hardly any way to separate them. So when I say language, of course, I'm meaning it in the broad sense that includes not just written or spoken words, but signs, symbols, illustrations, and maps. Maps, in particular, are archetypal examples of how language informs context. We've heard a lot of people talk about various mappings and maps and things this, this, uh, this week. This is Boylan Heights. 
It is a historic neighborhood in Raleigh, North Carolina. On the left is the map snapped from Google Maps. Uh, uh, maps are a very specialized form of language that we use to shape our understanding of geographic contexts. And on the right is a satellite view with the Boylan Heights area kind of highlighted so you can see where it is. Um, now, in the physical world, maps and landscape are not the same thing, at least not literally. But in every way except literally, the closer you look at their relationship, the more the boundaries begin to blur when you start realizing that that physical space doesn't exist except for in our minds. I mean, in terms of any relevance to us, at least. It, it doesn't exist except for how we perceive it. And our perception is shaped by the maps that we're used to. When you look at this photograph of Boylan Heights, you already have a filter with which you comprehend the physical reality that you see. We're so used to seeing neighborhoods mapped with street maps, we automatically narrow our comprehension of the reality. I'm looking at a series of streets with a bunch of anonymous houses and some trees and stuff. The map narrows your focus to a very thin slice of that neighborhood's reality. Well, there's something special about Boylan Heights. It was the subject of an obsession of a writer, artist, and professor of geography named Dennis Wood. Uh, it was where he lived when he was teaching at North Carolina State University. And some of you may have heard about this on This American Life. They've played it like four or five times in the last 10 years. It's a great story. Um, so he's kind of an artist philosopher as well. And uh, for a while, he had a project going where he mapped this neighborhood in some very unconventional ways. So here's a map of uh, Boylan Heights, the overhead lines map, tracking the various phone and power lines throughout the neighborhood. Completely different way of looking at the neighborhood. Everything else is gone from the map. Uh, the street signs map. This, is, this tells us interesting things about where people tend to uh, need to walk or to cross streets or where people are supposed to slow down or uh, where bus stops tend to be and things like that. It tells us interesting things about the patterns of behavior and migration and, and movement in the neighborhood. There's the underground map showing sewer and water lines and cisterns. If you were water, this is how you would see Boylan Heights. There's the streetlights map showing where light divides darkness after sundown. There is the car spaces map, uh, which shows informal and formal areas for cars. Um, and if you were a car, this would be how you saw Boylan Heights. It, this is the mentions in the newsletter map that tracked mentions of certain addresses in the neighborhood newsletter over the years. Interestingly, no matter who lived in the homes during that time, the same homes tended to have more mentions than others. Does this mean that certain homes just command more attention? Does it mean that particular homes attract certain kinds of owners who just happen to be that much, you know, like the kinds of people who get those big corner houses are the ones who love to be, you know, on the neighborhood watch and all that kind of stuff. Um, this is my favorite. Uh, it's the porches in the neighborhood where you find one or more jack-o'-lanterns at Halloween. Interestingly, it corresponds highly to the mentions in the newsletter map. Right? The gregarious sort of, we're going to take the time to decorate people are the ones who are in the newsletter a lot. Okay. Taken together, these maps are incredibly entertaining and enlightening. Um, after all, a neighborhood is made up of neighbors. Um, the streets are just a very thin slice of what the place means to human beings. What these maps remind us of is that we often receive messages about contexts without really thinking. We assume that when we're looking at a, 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 some streets in a neighborhood that our map in our head is all about the streets and, and not everything else. Uh, without questioning what other experience or wisdom might be hidden from us because we hadn't looked or we hadn't asked. It's not the map's fault. The map is just doing the work that the maker assumed it needed to do. If it did everything, it would cease to be a useful working map. It would just be the landscape, which it can't be. 
The territory was there first, and the map came later. But the map has a lot of power over how we understand the territory. Dennis says that uh, the map's effectiveness is a consequence of the selectivity or interest with which it brings the past to bear on the present. Maps work by serving interests. Everything that we map works by serving various interests. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother mapping it. So um, that's not a bad thing. It just means that it's, it's what makes a map a map. And every time we shape language with context or context with language, um, it's serving some interest, whether consciously or explicitly or not. I suspect that more often than not, when we describe context with language, we don't consider the options because they really haven't occurred to us. So now you may be wondering when we're going to get to more of this sort of digital part of this talk. Um, well, online, we have a lot of maps that shape how we understand the things that they describe. But online, there's kind of a further wrinkle. And to illustrate this wrinkle, I'm going to talk about MUDs. Okay, now we're getting into deep, deep geek territory. Uh, who here has been on an online multi-user domain or MUSH? Okay, good. Uh, not, there's more of you than uh, MUSH or a MOO. Um, there are many lovely acronyms for these. Um, these are multi-user domains. They're precursors. I would have one up here to show you, but that would be uh, annoying. Um, like, uh, they're sort of precursors to like World of Warcraft or Second Life. Um, basically, it's like being in a chat room, but all the chat rooms are connected, and there are descriptions of things around you that you can look at and interact with, okay? And uh, some of them have storylines, some of them have uh, monsters to kill, some of them are just social. It's all done with typed textual language. It's all based on text. Um, and to make a room, to make something for a MUD, you, you use language, you use a command line language, uh, like the, the command dig. Um, followed by a lot of parameters to create that room. And then once you create it, other people who are on there at the same time can go in the room and look around and see how it's described, and it feels very much like, oh, I'm in this place. Well, um, MUDs and their kin have their own script language for their creation. This is all language. But it's experienced very much like a spatial environment. And what you create ends up being experienced like a series of connected rooms, subcontexts that all make up the larger context of the MUD. This is a map of just part of a long-term, uh, or excuse me, a long-time mud based on the, the novels about disk world. So um, even though I'm showing you a map here, which is really just another language artifact, uh, the visual is meant to evoke the fact that there is a context being created with this language. But unlike Boylan Heights, there is no physical context with, context with which to compare this map. There is no actual neighborhood there to look at, okay? So that's why I have to show you the map rather than the place. In order to show you the place, I would have to dial into the mud and show you every room. This is, by the way, only like maybe a half a percent of the thing. It's gigantic. Um, so here's the point I'm making. In digital space, the map creates the territory, not the other way around. The map creates the territory. Now, I know most of you don't use muds, mushes, and moos, or don't recently, or won't admit it if you have. Um, but the web is really not that different. So on the web, we make the territories, the contexts, by mapping them, and the map becomes its own territory and vice versa. At Google, there's a site map. That site map represents all the places that you can go at Google, on google.com. Um, it represents the, the structure that you're in, kind of like a map at a shopping mall, but at a mall, it would just tell you how to walk you know, to the other space, like if you want to get to the Apple store, to the, uh, the food court, for example. Um, 
except that this map is different. This map is also the instantiation of the place. It is the place itself. When you use it, you move through the space it instantiates. On the web, representation and instantiation merge. This is important to understanding how powerful language is on the web or online in ways that we never imagined it could be powerful uh, in, in the physical world. So uh, weirdly, this is starting to trickle over into the physical world a little bit. Um, if we think of Google as a sort of map to not only things online, but all kinds of stuff in the real world too, uh, then it can get kind of strange. For example, let's say you were interested in how saddles are made or something like them, and you decided to go to Google and look for leatherworking, and you searched for leatherworking. You see the search results? Uh, this is all about how to make leather goods in the land of Azeroth. Uh, which is where World of Warcraft is set. Uh, the first, I think the whole first page actually has nothing but this in it um, about World of Warcraft, not real saddles. Why, you may ask? Well, there are over 8 million people playing this game, and a lot of them want to know how to make a death mantle chest guard, by golly. And it's important. Remember, as Dennis Wood told us, maps work by serving interests. If there's enough interests in something, then it's going to show up. And uh, this map has been shifted somewhat based on that. Now, the funny thing is, if you just search for a leather work, it doesn't do this. There's something about the ING that's peculiar to the sort of uh, uh, um, words that are used in the World of Warcraft community. So, but again, it makes a huge difference. Just a, little, just a few characters. We'll get to that later. If this makes you feel a little dizzy, it should, because it's the sort of vertigo you get when you realize you're living in more than one place at the same time. The world we live in is less and less exclusively physical. Just as I've been speaking, quite a few of you, I can tell, are Twittering, you're typing blogs, you're checking your, your messages, all kinds of things. If you could use your phone, you'd be checking your phones. Um, and that's okay. I mean, we're all sort of expecting that. Uh, increasingly, we are walking around in many contexts at the same time to the point where we have to start rethinking what here means. What does it mean when we say, I am here? If you're in a uh, chat room, you know, uh, with some people right now, they think you're there. This dimension, this information dimension, does not behave like the world that we evolved in. For many of us, like the world we even grew up in. Um, it's entirely made of language. It can change what we mean by here with a single sentence, a word, even just a character. Taking fuzzy human stuff and making it into data does other weird stuff. Um, the, the, uh, it tends to screen out the ambiguities in a way that works very well for the logical grid of databases and taxonomies, but loses a lot of meaning along the way. Unlike physical life, where our language comes with a lot of contextual nuance, like tone of voice, subject, or, or the subject of the conversation, or even just a, a symbol like this, which people can interpret many different ways, digital space tends to be very narrow in its definitions. If you can read that, that's the what relationship you're in uh, drop-down from Facebook. I don't mean to just totally be beaten up on Facebook, by the way. Uh, they're just sort of my whipping boy today. But anyway, but this forces you into a mutually exclusive decision uh, for a database to say, what, what is the exact description of my relationship? When, honestly, for a lot of people, these are kind of getting close to their relationship, but not necessarily, you know, um, or what people might interpret from, from that answer might be different. What the system does with that bit of context you give it might not really fit your expectations of what it should do. It takes words that have a lot of richness and truncates their meanings into these logical absolutes, because that's what machines do. 
Um, digital space is pretty ruthless about interpreting our ambiguities, and that can be a problem because our lives and our language are full of ambiguity. There's the classic example from the book Eat, Shoots, and Leaves, a phrase that can be understood in a couple of different ways. It can be cute, like a panda eating lunch. Isn't that adorable? That's from the Atlanta Zoo. Um, or if you just add a comma, it can get kind of freaky. Um, now, just one little typo in a letter or email to somebody isn't that big of a deal necessarily because they usually know who you are. They kind of understand what the thread of the conversation is about. Um, they're probably going to know that you're not trying to flee from a food-related homicide. But digital space is more literal than that. It will happily take your typo as a real command and execute it no matter how absurd it might be unless the design prevents you from making such an error. What I'm getting at here is that whereas something as small as a comma can radically change the meaning of language on a page, in digital space, something that small can radically change the meaning of the space. For example, in physical space, there's an obvious difference between a little nook in the corner of a room where you can whisper to a friend and a stage where that statement would be heard by thousands of people, okay? Obvious difference. I mean, you really can't easily make the mistake of being in one instead of the other. Um, but on Twitter, you do have both of these options. You can be in the hidden nook by using the D, right, for a direct message. It's supposed to be a private message to one other user. Or you can reply, use the reply sign that we've been hearing about today, um, where you say something that's in full view of everybody who follows you or anybody on the web if your feed isn't locked. Now, on Twitter, it's incredibly easy to make that mistake. How many of you have made that mistake who use Twitter? Right. I see them on my, my, my Twitter feed constantly, like these nice little things they'll say to their significant other or something, and hope, you know, usually they're not terribly embarrassing. Um, this sort of thing can be really disorienting. I mean, everybody here, I'm sure, has had rep reply all on an email at some point when you didn't mean to. And how many of you did that, but it was something you really didn't want those other people to see? All right, yeah, it's, a, it's terribly common. Uh, this sort of thing can be very disorienting, and it's the result of the fact that we're living in this other dimension that we don't fully understand yet, a place that can radically affect not only who we are, uh, where we are, but who we are. The fact that um, it is not so obvious, these little differences, even though we've grown up in or we evolved in uh, uh, situations where it was terribly obvious. The spaces we inhabit are powerful shapers of our identities, especially when we're inhabiting them. Uh, take, for example, the Garden Variety office building. It's a glorious place. Um, an office typically has a particular architecture with specific design choices that limit what you can do there, or at least it only affords certain activities easily. If you've ever tried having a social event in a cube farm like this, you know how annoying it can be. Um, but in a nightclub, there's a bar, the bathrooms are situated differently, uh, there's a dance floor, the lights are down, the music's up, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's great for partying, but it ain't so great for getting work done. You really couldn't get much work done in there. Um, now, when you're at the office, you're wearing your office hat, you're playing that role. It's not fake, it's just a side of your personality. When you're at a nightclub, or whatever social fun atmosphere you prefer in your off hours, you wear a different hat, emphasizing different parts of your personality. It can be a little awkward to be out partying hard and you run into somebody from the office, especially if you, know, you work in a big corporation where uh, the, the sort of informal, formal thing is, is, is really different. 
And it gives you that sense of vertigo that you get when you're in two places at once. That's that feeling of two parts of your identity kind of rubbing up against each other. Well, that happens in the physical world, fine, but it doesn't happen that often. But now we're offered this plethora of choices um, for, uh, I hope I didn't go too far just then. Okay, good. Uh, Now we're offered this plethora of choices uh, for, okay, I need to back up, sorry. Are we, okay, there, we're fine. this plethora of choices of places that each has its own architecture that kind of shapes what your identity can be when you're there and what it is when you're there. A profile at LinkedIn has vastly different choices than one at chemistry. LinkedIn will ask about your job history, but not about what you like to do on a date or with a date or to a date. Uh, Chemistry will want you to say a lot of things about dating and your sexual preferences and whatnot, but that would never really fit on LinkedIn, would it? Um, It won't ask you, uh, uh, but chemistry is not going to ask you for an extensive job history. All of these have these architectures that afford certain kinds of identities, these facets of ourselves, at least many of them started that way. This brings us a lot of challenges when it comes to crossover of contexts. We might not want our office mates to know what nightclubs we go to. We might not want people on LinkedIn to know what we like to do on a date. But unlike an office or a nightclub or a church or Vegas, these are not the physical places we're used to. Uh, This crossover can change at a moment's notice. My transitions are not what I thought they were going to be. Let me see. There we go. Okay. So I know a lot of people who started out using Facebook when they were in school, and the strong implication was nobody's going to be here except your classmates. The very structure of the site's security made an implicit promise about the nature of that space because you couldn't do it unless you had a school login or a school email address. But then Facebook changed almost overnight, and people found themselves in the uncomfortable position of having to uh, have sides of themselves that they meant to present only to people their age from their background in this wholly new place. And it changed with the flick of a switch, essentially, Uh, without any big warnings, without any tractors coming through town. It just happened. Where in the physical world has that ever happened? We're just not, it's just not something that we're used to processing. Again, you get that vertigo. So we'd like to think that our identities are not so dependent on these contexts or the people that we're around. We'd like to believe that we're more independent and solid than that. But science and philosophy have been telling us for a generation now that objectively speaking, we're just not. Uh, We're constructed from the interactions, memories, and stories around us. The self is a useful illusion of sorts, a reification that we depend upon for getting along in the world. It doesn't mean it's meaningless. It just means that it's more complicated than we thought. Here's another uh, Duchamp creation, nude descending a staircase. If, if, uh, if anybody else experienced this, when you were a kid and you first encountered this uh, painting and you were like, but they're not naked. <laughs> it's kind of like, I thought there's going to be nakedness in my textbook, and there's not. Anyway, maybe that was just me. Um, it probably was. Uh, anyway, this is nude descending a staircase. Um, it prefigures this weird sort of time, space, displaced dimension that we've created for ourselves where our identities are sliced, frozen in time, spread across space. Our identities are inextricably bound up in the spaces and the systems that we make for ourselves. This is Sherry Turkle, a professor and writer at MIT. She's been exploring these issues for a long time. Way back in 1995, in Life on the Screen, she explained how the internet had brought us to a sort of literal culmination of the theoretical stuff that people like Lacan, Foucault, Levi-Strauss, and other postmodernists were talking about. 
She described the self as a multiple distributed system, a decentered self that exists in many worlds and plays many roles at the same time, a world in which so-called real life is just one more window. I focus a lot on identity and privacy here, and that's mostly in the interest of time, uh, but I want to be sure to mention that the context problem is bigger than that. It affects the way we earn and spend and lend money. Part of what made the mortgage crisis possible is that it's easier to approve a bad loan when the damage is going to be far away from you in the contextual system, just like it's easier to pull a lever than it is to push somebody. That made a huge difference. Um, it also affects the way that we learn, the way we think of family, how we're informed about the world, or even how we play games. Don't, make sure you read that because we proved it. Um, the context problem exists everywhere we or anything about us can be online. Now, that's an important distinction. There are millions of people who are not online on this planet, but information about them is, and that's still important too. You've probably heard of the, uh, have you heard of the Google Earth Darfur thing that started last year? Uh, as they partnered with the uh, Holocaust Museum. Um, it's an astonishing sort of powerful example of how radically context has been disrupted for our species. The idea that we can see uh, like this what is going on in that country through satellite photographs. Um, implicitly, it raises a question of what the human limits are to comprehending context. At what point, no matter how much information we receive, is another context only an abstraction if we can't then reach in and affect it the way that it is affecting us, right? If it isn't two-way, then does that affect our, our, our ability to even think of it as something real? Um, that's an interesting question. It's one of thousands of interesting questions that I don't hear us talking about nearly enough in design circles. All of this stuff is going on, and it's almost like we just sort of take it for granted, and, uh, and, and, and I don't want us to. So that's what I'm going to wrap up on is this, is this sort of call to action about this. Um, so as we've established, language and context shape one another, especially online where everything is made of language. And the more our lives exist online, the more of our living space, our identity, and meaning are affected by this relationship. And this relationship is one between language, which is essentially information, and the context that's formed from this information, the architecture, the structures, places, experiences through which we move, converse, and live. And what I'm getting at here is not that, what I'm getting at here is that this is an extremely important role, I think, of the practice of information architecture. What I'm not saying is that it is the exclusive domain of information architects. Okay, so let's make sure we're separating those things. Um, but it is significant. Notice I haven't mentioned findability once in this presentation, because that's not really what this is about. I mean, it's part of it, but, but it goes so much deeper than that. Um, we lack a suitable language for contextual systems. As a result, we lack suitable tools methods, patterns, heuristics, and all kinds of other stuff that we really need for discovering, clearly understanding, and solving the problems that these new contextual systems present to us. A number of people this week have been talking about things that I think are touching on a lot of these issues. What I'm calling for is for sort of like consolidating this effort or at least connecting it more and pushing it even harder. Um, who's going to figure this out? Well, 
Since we're here at a conference created by the IA Institute, I'll mention that I do believe an organization like this has an important role in this work. It's not an exclusive role, of course, but I'd like to see it provide leadership and opportunities for our various communities to have these conversations. And since I'm on the board now, then I'm really kind of telling myself to do this. Um, we especially need a coherent theoretical framework, uh, but we also need practical resources and tools. But that's just part of the answer. Um, no matter what organization you belong to or what you call yourself, it's really going to take all of us. I just want us to be conscious of it and to talk about it. So thanks for being here to talk about it, and let's get to work. Thank you. Okay.